Bible study through the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. I just got to say, Bill had some awesome hair when he was young. This is really, really awesome. <laughs> just saying. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we read, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The title of my message this morning is The Devil's Playbook. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives and our hearts. We thank you, Lord, as we dig into your word. You bring out sections and portions of scripture that we need to hear uh, specifically, Lord, in our lives and in, in, in in corporately as a church. We thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives. We pray, Lord, also if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially touch their life, Lord, help them to see their need for you and to turn to you in faith today. Thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so two big football games today, right, for you football fans, right? AFC and NFC championship games between the 49ers and the Eagles and the Chiefs. And the Bengals. So in honor of the big games, I found some terms that are football terms that someone's applied it to church terms, okay? For example, the quarterback sneak. Church members who quietly leave church during the closing invitation. The draw play. What many children do with the bulletin during service. Backfield in motion. Making a trip to the back restroom or for coffee during the service. Instant replay. The preacher loses his notes and falls back on last week's illustrations. In my case, the preacher can't come up with new jokes, so he uses old ones. Uh, bench warmer. Those who do not sing, pray, work, or apparently do anything but sit. How about staying in the pocket? What happens to a lot of money that should be given to the Lord's work? <laughs> Sacked. 
when you think the pastor's message applies to everybody in the church but you. Two more. Sudden death overtime. What happens to the attention span of the congregation if the preacher goes overtime? <laughs> Finally, blitz. The rush for the restaurants following the closing prayer. Now, that said, as I said, there's two important games today, you know, between the 49ers and the Eagles and the Chiefs and the Bengals. Bengals. Now, I'm sure all these teams have done their homework. They've they've studied each other's weaknesses and strengths, and they plan to launch their attack. I heard one really dumb reporter ask this to Coach Andy Reid of the Chiefs. He said, quote, you played the Bengals three times, and all three times you've lost. What do you see in the Bengals team that you can now use against them to win in the game? Like he's going to get up there in front of all these people, even the Bengals organization, go, well, we're going to do this against them because we think it's going to work. You're not going to give away your plan. There's no way you're going to give away your, your play. Uh, but, you know, both teams, they've been studying films, or all these teams have been studying films on each other nonstop since they found out who they were going to play. They're all, we're going to play the 49ers. We're going to play, you know, the, the, the Bengals. So we got to see what they do. And they have their plans, and they have their plays all laid out to run. Listen, in the same way, Satan has been running his same plays for at least 6,000 years. And he has studied man, and he knows our weaknesses. He's done his homework. But the difference is, the devil only has three plays. That's it. Same three plays he runs day after day. And he runs them over and over again. Not because that's all he knows, but because it's what has worked. See, in this world, we have three enemies. We have the world, we have the flesh, and we have the devil. And in the devil's playbook, He's tempting us to give in to our flesh by presenting to us the things of the world. What are the things of the world? Well, John tells us in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so Satan has only really three plays, three temptations in his playbook. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he runs them over and over and over again. Why? Again, because they work. But they will work if we are prepared. Same way, if the Bengals had a copy of the Chiefs' playbook, it would put the Chiefs at a considerable disadvantage. I think they'd still win because they're that good, but it wouldn't be easy. But listen, we have our enemy's playbook. We know how he operates, and that puts him at a considerable disadvantage. And that's what we want to do. We want to put our enemy at a considerable disadvantage. In fact, Paul, the apostle, tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that we are not ignorant of his devices. We know how he works. We know his plans. We know his plays. We know what to expect. So this morning, we're going to talk about the devil's playbook. But more specifically, we'll be talking about temptation. Looking at Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil and how he resisted. So that we might do the same when Satan runs one of his plays in our life. Now we know that temptation is just a part of life. Until we no longer have a body of sin, we will be tempted to commit sin. But in reality, every temptation is an opportunity to overcome and to get victory over sin in our lives. 
In fact, Jesus set the example for us. We're told in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. We can learn so much by watching what Jesus did, what, 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 listening to what Jesus said, how He lived His life. He set the example for us. He showed us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He showed us how to become a servant when He knelt down on His feet and He began to wash His disciples' feet. He showed us how to love when He went to the cross and gave His life for us. He set an example for us of being led by the Holy Spirit. Same way this morning in our text, Jesus is setting us an example on how we too can resist temptation. Now you might say, well, Jesus wasn't his God, and that's how he overcame Satan. No, listen, Jesus used no supernatural abilities. He didn't call upon any mighty angel to come and, and, and who would love, love to come and help out. He performed no amazing miracles. You see, the story is told in such a way that leaves us no doubt in our minds that Jesus faced his adversary, not as God, but as a man depending upon God which then makes his victory over Satan all the more amazing, but shows that we too can resist the devil as he did. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. Number one, the spirit leading. Number two, the devil tempting. And number three, the believer's victory. First and foremost, the spirit leading. Look at verse one. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, last week we saw that Jesus was baptized. And we understood that Jesus didn't need to be baptized for the remission of sin, for repentance. He was the perfect, sinless Savior. Jesus was baptized to identify with us, the human race, to, to place Himself among us so we would understand He was here to represent us. And now immediately after Jesus was identified with sinful, sinful humanity, through His baptism, the Holy Spirit leads Him into the wilderness where he would be tempted by the devil. The Gospel of Mark says it even stronger, saying that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. doesn't mean that Jesus went unwillingly, but it does indicate that this showdown with the devil didn't happen by accident. It was all planned out. Now, in the same way, as servants of the Lord, we all want to be led by the Holy Spirit. It's one of our deepest desires in our hearts. We just need to remember that the Holy Spirit may lead us into uncomfortable places, into many challenges. For some reason, uh, I sometimes think that, that if I'm really being led by the Spirit, then, then my life will be this constant progress of, uh, of one happy experience to another happy experience. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll never encounter any problems. It'll be all smooth sailing, no problems. The sky will always be blue. I'll never have a flat tire, never run out of gas. It'll all be sunshine and roses. That's not always the case. God is growing us and He's sanctifying us and preparing us for a future with Him. And as a result, at times, that process is not always sunshine and roses. But understand this, the challenges you may be facing right now, if the Holy Spirit has led or even driven you to them, then God is going to use them for your good. So don't lose heart. Don't be afraid of the circumstances. If God is for you, who can be against you? And let's remember that as we keep going on here. And this brings us to point number two, the devil tempting. Look at verse one again. Then Jesus was being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, verse two, and being tempted for 40 days 
by the devil. You know, oftentimes after great blessings come the strongest attacks. Because it's interesting to note here that Satan came and tempted Jesus right after this huge blessing of, of being baptized by John. And it does seem that, that often after the blessings come the battles. Often temptations come after great times of blessing. It's been said by one pastor, after the dove came then the devil. And it's a principle I think we all learned in school. It was Isaac Newton who actually coined the phrase, every action brings an equal and opposite reaction. Every action in heaven brings a reaction from hell. So as heaven was opened, now hell is open. Listen, the more business you do with God, the more business you're going to do with the devil. It's just a fact of life. But don't let that scare you. It's just a fact. Nothing promotes the activity of the devil more than your proximity to God. The closer you get to God, when you say, God, I'm going to seek you, Lord. I'm going to be in your word. I'm going to live close to you each and every day. Don't think that Satan is going to go, oh, that's great for you, that's awesome. Or his little minions are going to go, man, yeah, way to go, that's awesome. No, they're going to look at us as, as a challenge. Oh, really? Yeah, we'll see about that. But again, let me assure you, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You don't have to be afraid of your enemy. You're dealing with a defeated enemy. You're fighting not for victory, you're fighting from victory. You have the victory in Christ. So, we see after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, before we can defeat the enemy, we need to know a little bit about him. don't want to spend too much on on him. He doesn't deserve it. But the word devil is mentioned some 35 times in the Bible. And the word Satan is referenced some 55 times. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, we're told that his task is, is set out on this earth to accuse the brethren. He's the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. In Job chapter 2, he's out destroying life. And in here in Luke chapter 4, he's so arrogant, so bold, that he's tempting Jesus Christ. We know that, that according to Scripture, uh, Satan was originally Lucifer. He was uh, an anointed angel set to guard God's throne. But instead of guarding it, he wanted to be on it. And so he fell. This Lucifer, this high-ranking angel, fell from this high-privileged position because of his beauty and caused his heart to be lifted up with, with pride. In fact, listen to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 14, speaking of Lucifer. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the, of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And that's when Lucifer became Satan or the adversary when he wanted to be worshipped as God. He had eye trouble. I will be like God. I will reign. I, 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 I. And the Lord says, you, you're out of here. You're ejected from the game. You're gone. And as Satan rebelled against God, we know one third of the angels followed him. And that's who we believe are demons today. But know this, the good news is there's two-thirds of the angels that are on our side still left behind. Yeah, one-third went with the devil, and there are millions and millions of them, which means he has a formidable force at his disposal, but we have so much more at ours. Folks, the devil and his cohorts are real. Not only because we read it in God's Word, but because we see the ramifications of his influence in this world today. 
All you got to do is, is bring up on your, on your, your internet the, you know, the, the news and you'll see all types of the crimes that we're seeing today that can only be linked to demonic activity. You can't think that, that a human can be so wicked. It's got to be demonic. And right now he's plotting and he's planning and he's strategically attempting to destroy your life. That's his game plan. But let me tell you again, he has no new ideas. Each one of these temptations Jesus will face all fall under his playbook. Again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it goes all the way back there to the garden. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. That it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. That it was desirable to make one wise. That's the pride of life. All three of these same things from the very beginning. Now, I want to point out something interesting here. Look at verse 2. Again, it says, Jesus being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Jesus was actually fasting for those 40 days, and then he was hungry. Now, I'm told, I've never fasted 40 days uh, fasting, but, but I'm told that if you keep fasting and without, withhold food from your body, for a prolonged period of time, you eventually get to a place where you're not hungry at all. And, and you can actually handle it. You can deal with it. Your stomach is shrunk down. Your, your body's feeding off of itself, essentially. But you don't have that, that deep-seated hunger like you did at first. But then when that hunger finally re-emerges, like it did here with Jesus, it's an indication that your body's at the point of starving to death. And again, we read here that it says he's hungry. The hunger reemerged. Now, when does Satan attack him? Not just after the blessing, but when he's most vulnerable, when he's at his weakest level physically. And the devil comes to him and, and starts you know, punching him and, and, and plays his first play in his playbook. And it's the lust of the flesh. The first one, look at verse 3. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I want you to notice this little word, if, there. It could be translated, since you are the Son of God. It's not a supposition. It's an affirmation. The Weiss translation of the New Testament puts it this way. In view of the fact that you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Since you have all power, use your power for yourself, to satisfy yourself. Now, I'm told, I've not been there, but I'm, I'm told in the Judean wilderness, there are millions of these round limestone rocks. It just so happened to look an awful lot like little loaves of bread. Now, in my mind, I picture this loaf of sourdough bread, and it's warm, and you know, it's crunchy on the outside and soft on the inside, and you crack it open, you put all that butter on there, and it's just, just you know, where I'm going to get after church. But anyway, <laughs> here's Satan. No doubt, probably holding this, this rock right in front of his face. Come on, Jesus. Do something about it. You know, I know you're hungry. Satisfy that hunger. Feed your flesh. You know you want to. Same plan that he used in the garden against Eve. Eve, God is holding out on you. Satisfy your hunger. Feed your flesh. You know you want to. And again, it said that Genesis 3, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She was tempted and she fell. Satan's running the same play again. Now, what was he hoping to accomplish? He wanted Jesus to question his father's provision. Saying, since you are the son of God, was really a slam. He was, he was putting 
the put down. Hey, since you're the, the promised one, since you're the son of God, since that's true, why isn't your father providing for you? Why would he let his own son, the Messiah, starve to death? So use your power. You do something for yourself. End this hunger that you're at. See, Jesus, during Jesus' baptism, God identified him as his beloved son. And now Satan comes on the scene and challenges the very words that God has spoken. And he's appealing to the body, to the desires of the flesh. Listen, there's no sin in being hungry. Yet Satan suggested that if Christ were truly God's son, then God shouldn't let him hunger. Satan always wants us to think that God is holding out on us. That we need to do something to get what we want. And when we allow our fleshly desires to rule over us, and they take priority over God's will and cause us to violate God's righteousness, that's the lust of the flesh. It's giving in to the lust of the flesh. It's sin. Sexual intimacy in a marriage relationship is a blessing from God. Seeking to fulfill that intimacy outside of marriage relationship, it's sin. It's a lust of the flesh. Nothing wrong with being hungry. Hunger drives us to, to find food. Eating is a good thing. It's a Christian's you know, favorite pastime. It's not a sin to eat. Jesus ate and drank while he was on this earth. But hunger becomes a lust for food and it turns into gluttony, which is sin. And people say, well, it's my comfort food. It, 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 it just satisfies me. Well, here's some comfort food I found for you. It's on, I found on the internet. I find anything on the internet. The world's largest dish is on a menu in a Saudi Arabia restaurant. Whether it's real or fake, I couldn't tell you, but it was the International, in the International Cuisine Magazine. This is something you need to invite your friends over for a Super Bowl party. It's a recipe for a whole roasted stuffed camel. Okay, doesn't sound good? Calls for one whole camel, medium size, one whole lamb, large size, 20 whole chickens, 60 eggs, that'll cost a fortune now, four pounds of pine nuts, 110 gallons of water, five pounds of black pepper, 26 pounds of rice, and four pounds of almonds. And then it gives you the recipe. Skin, trim, and clean camel. I'm sure once you get over the hump. It says, then clean the lamb and the chicken, boil until tender, cook rice until fluffy, fry nuts until brown and mix with rice, hard boil your eggs and peel, stuff cooked chickens with hard boiled eggs and rice, uh, stuff the cooked lamb with the stuffed chickens, add more rice, stuff the camel with the stuffed lamb that's stuffed with the chicken, and now the rest of the rice, broil over a large charcoal pit until brown, spread any remaining rice on a large tray, and place camel on top of rice, decorate with boiled eggs and nuts, Serves a friendly crowd of 80 to 100. And it has a guy's name who, who's, who wrote the recipe for that. The recipe will, will be available after service. If any of you guys want it, I'll, I'll get it for you. But here's the fact. You can eat this entire camel from start to finish. And guess what? The next day, you're going to get up and be hungry. It's not going to satisfy you. I don't think it satisfies you the first day. But, but it, my point is, Satan comes and tempts us to think, Hey, this thing that you're being tempted with, it's going to bring ultimate satisfaction in your life. It just, if you just had it, this will make you happy. If you just had this one thing, you would be content. you got to have this. After all, God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? That's all lies. First of all, God wants us to be holy. And secondly, listen to Psalm 84, verse 11. God's Word tells us, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, 
The Lord will give grace and the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Listen, if God is not allowing something in your life, it's because he knows what is best for your life. But the moment we say, well, I think I know what's best for my life and I need to do this and God just isn't giving it to me for me. And and, and we're believing the lies of Satan and we fail and we fall and we're left empty. The things in this world will never satisfy. You know, the Bible says marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. But when natural sexual desires uh, turn perverse, they lead to homosexuality and adultery and fornication and other sexually related uh, sins. Those are lots of the flesh as well that Satan tempts us with. Oh, you're not happy in your marriage. You know, don't look to the Lord. You know, you need to do something about it. Hey, that co-worker is paying attention to you. Go talk to him. Go talk to her. Then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be It's all lies from the devil. See, the normal and natural tendency of all of us is to focus on the physical, to focus on what we can see, to try and satisfy the physical needs of everything else instead of looking to the Lord. So what are we to do when we're tempted like this? To look what Jesus did. Satan said to Jesus, you're hungry. God's holding out on you. Take matters into your own hands. Turn this rock into bread. You'll be great. No, look what, what Jesus says in verse 4. Jesus answered him saying, answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. This is powerful. This is something we need to be reminded of that Jesus is saying uh, over and over again. Jesus was saying the physical stuff is not what matters in this life. It's the spiritual. It's not the material realm. It's the spiritual realm. See, Jesus here in verse 4 is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. In other words, feeding the inner spiritual person is far more important than feeding the physical, he's saying. So how do we overcome the lust of the flesh? By feeding upon the Word of God. You see, in Jesus' response, he's saying more important than physical food, it's the spiritual food, it's God's Word in our lives. Isaiah the prophet, he was, uh, said concerning this very same thing in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2, he said, Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Isaiah was hitting on an important truth here that man will never be satisfied physically. There's no lasting satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ. Instead, feed upon the Word of God. Be satisfied in the Lord, and your soul will be delighted when you see all that God has done for you, all that God has, has for you. So we see here Jesus says, it is written. That is our defense. That is our offense against the enemy. And we'll look more at that in a moment. Let's look at the next temptation, verses 5 through 8. Then the devil, taking him on the, on the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So after the lust of the flesh, Satan goes, Okay, here's my second play in my playbook. It's the lust of the eyes. And he says, Look, Jesus, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Aren't they amazing? It's all yours. If, if you just worship me. 
Now understand, Satan has the, had the authority to offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Paul declares in, uh, uh, Satan in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that he's the God of this world. When Adam and Eve chose to listen to Satan rather than to obey God, they in effect handed him over the, the title deed of the earth. And that's the reason for the pain and the problems that affect our world today. It's all because of sin and, and allowing sin, sin in this world. But you see, the lust of the eyes doesn't refer only to looking at something that would tempt or stimulate you to do wrong. The lust of the eyes is seeing any other way than God's way to accomplish his purpose. See, Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you will worship before me, all of this will be yours. But notice Jesus' reply. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. What's interesting to me is that Satan didn't say, I want you to serve me. No, he says, I want you to worship me. But Jesus recognized that just a moment of worship could lead to a lifetime of, of service at whatever altar you bow down to. It could be the altar of pleasure. Just a moment could lead to a lifetime of service. Just a moment at the altar of fornication could lead to a lifetime of regret. Fornication meaning sex before marriage or outside of marriage, which is never blessed or something that God approves of, even if you're planning on getting married. But then you have to end up with a lifetime of dealing with maybe an unwanted pregnancy or some STD for life. Just one moment is all it takes. Just a moment at the altar of adultery can lead to a destroyed marriage, devastating your reputation, hurting your children. See, all these things, just a moment, and you end up serving these things. That's why Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Because whatever altar you're bowing down at is where you're going to end up serving. The good news is, we, we bow at the altar of Jesus Christ this morning. We, we bow before Him, and not before the altar of sex or drugs, not before the altar of materialism, but we are at the altar of the Lord. And it's Him who we are serving. And as a result, you have no regrets. But Satan's trying to divert Jesus away from this to something else. So all the kingdoms of the world, Satan offered. Listen, Satan will promise you the farm. He'll promise it all to you. He'll make you think you can have whatever you want just for, for, for the taking again if you take matters into your own hands instead of trusting God. You hear this all the time of people making a deal with the devil. You know, the problem is he's a liar and a father of all lies. Or you can have it all, and maybe you can, but it's still going to leave you empty. You hear these people that, that become rich and famous, and, and they're popular, and they're miserable, and they're empty because they don't have the Lord. Some people sell out their lives for just so little, and that's what Satan wants you to do. Think about Esau sold his birthright just for a bowl of beans, and he regretted it. Now, now again, back on verse 5 for a moment. The devil took him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world, and it says, in a moment of time, and then in verse 7, he says, therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Now you may think, well, that's not a big deal, you know, that would be an easy temptation to, to resist. I would never worship the devil for, for, for some kingdom someplace. But look, look a little closer. When he says, a moment of time, I believe he was being shown all the kingdoms of the world, past, present, and future in a moment of time. So what was Satan offering Jesus? It was an opportunity to gain the world without having to go to the way of the cross. To have the world without having people mock him. Without having people beat up on him. Having his back shredded by a whip. Having his beard pulled off of his face. 
to have the world without having that crown of thorns shoved down upon his head. I believe Jesus knew all of this awaited him. When you look at it from this perspective and from that perspective, you see, man, that's a, a much greater temptation that would have been. But you see, Jesus didn't need Satan's offer because he had already had the Father's promise to him. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Jesus had one goal when he came to this, this world. Uh, it was ultimately the cross to pay the price for man's sin. Nothing was going to deter him from doing what his father called him to do. He wouldn't take any shortcuts. And let me tell you, there's no shortcuts to the will of God. If we want to share in the glory, we must also share in the suffering. But nothing compares to the glory that will be revealed in us when we stand before our Lord in eternity. That brings us to our final play in Satan's playbook. It's the pride of life. Look at the third temptation, verse 9 through 11. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So here Satan brings uh, Jesus to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says to him again in verse 6, Since you are the Son of God, just throw yourself down. Uh, you, you'll, you'll be okay. In fact, the devil here actually begins to quote Scripture. Again, in verse 10, he says, Oh, it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. It's important to understand that Satan, the devil, knows Scripture. He can quote it. But vitally important, we need to understand that he's quoting it out of context and he's leaving out an important part here. That's a tool in his playbook that he uses quite often. Sadly, much like our vice president did recently in a speech promoting the killing of unborn children. I don't know if you caught this or not, but she said recently at at a pro-abortion rally, she said, we are here today because we collectively believe and know America is a promise It is a promise of freedom and liberty, not for some but for all, a promise that we made in the Declaration of Independence that we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Kamala, you got it wrong. That's not the way it reads in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You left out our Creator. You left out life. But what would you, what would you expect at an abortion rally? I don't think it was an accident. I don't know if you saw this yesterday as well. The Senate for the state of Minnesota passed one of the most extreme, California's worst, one of the most extreme abortion bills in the nation. The bill establishes a right to abortion up to the moment of birth. California, you can kill up babies after they're born. Listen, Satan's plan is to kill, to rob, to destroy And in some states, his plan is working. We need to be praying that it doesn't work here in Missouri. But we see Satan's influence on the political leaders in our country today. And God knows us, and God is a just God, and he will not let these murders go unpunished. Judgment will come. But my point is, Satan uses his influence in our world, and right here he's quoting God's word out of context, leaving out an important part of the passage. Satan's quoting Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12 says that. For he shall give his angels charge over you 
to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan left out a part. He left out, he will keep you in all your ways. Now, if Satan's going to leave out a, a, a verse, I'm immediately interested in why he would leave that out. Because he will keep you in all your ways. It's important. And it's important to understand Psalm 91. In order to understand it, you need to read the whole psalm. You just can't pick and choose those sections out of it. It's a psalm of God promising protection and provision in the life of of the believer, of a child of God. It's been called the the 911 for the believer. You know, the emergency dial 911 dial Psalm 911. Let me me read to you verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 91. It says this, first and foremost, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Do you see what's going on? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide. As the psalm goes on, it talks about all these great promises that God has for the believer. But over and over again, it's, for, it's, it's conditional. You have to be dwelling in the secret place of the Most High, under the shadow of the Almighty. Then, as the psalm goes on to say, for He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And it's clear from the context that it's speaking of walking in the ways of the Lord. So let me put it in a simple way. Psalm 91 is simply saying, as you walk in the will of God, as you're walking in the Spirit, you don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything because God will protect you and He will not allow anything to happen to you that that isn't in His perfect will for your life. But here is Satan saying, Jesus, jump off the, the pinnacle here. You're, you're Superman. You know you, you can do it. The angels, they're going to catch you. He's taking a verse here, a verse there to, to, to fit what he wants it to say. It's okay. The Bible says you can do it. And listen, everyone's going to be tweeting about it if you did it. I, I mean, you'll, you'll be in the, all the likes on social media. It doesn't say that, but think about it. You'll be so popular. See, he's pushing the pride of life, that third play in his playbook. But Jesus, Jesus brings it all back into context. Satan was, was telling Jesus to test the Lord, and, and uh, there's a big difference between trusting the Lord and testing the Lord. A lot of people test the Lord. A lot of people are out of God's will doing the wrong thing, and they'll say, well, the Bible says he'll give his angels charge over me. Yeah, so to keep you in all your ways. And you, you're assuming that, 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 that your ways are his ways. But if your ways are not his ways, and if you're breaking God's commandment and you're living in sin and, and living in a way that you shouldn't, don't quote a verse that speaks about God's protection because you may have voided them through your disobedience, through your sin. Sometimes we'll go out and we'll do something that's wrong and we'll get away with it. And in our warped, sinful thinking, we rationalize, well, God is somehow saying it's okay for us to do this. Don't ever mistake the grace of God for His approval. Sometimes God graciously doesn't nail us for what we do. He gives us a chance to repent and to turn from it. But then we do it again. And, and, and He doesn't. He gives us another chance and He gives us another chance and finally He says, okay, no more chances. You're going to reap what you've sown. And He lets the repercussions take place. And then we blame God. God, how could you let this happen in my life? This is all, man, look, how could you do this to me? No, it's because what you've been doing. So here the verse is saying we need to trust the Lord, but we never want to test the Lord. Don't tempt the Lord. Don't say, I wonder how far I can go and not get hurt. I wonder how much I can be, you know, in the, like the world without really being in the world. You can't live that way. 
take Jesus' example. Say, I'm not going to give in to this temptation. I know my Father is with me. I know He will protect me. I don't have to prove it. And that's why Jesus responds the way He does in verse 12. Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus, comparing Scripture with Scripture, taking into consideration the total message of the Bible, not stopping and picking and choosing as Satan did. This brings us to our final point, point number three, the believer's victory. See, in each one of these temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the only tool, the only weapon that Jesus used against him is the Word of God. And that encourages me. Because I can do the same thing. You can do the same thing. Jesus gave us this example. He's saying if you want to have a victorious Christian life, if you want to defeat the enemy, you want to resist temptation, then know and use the Word of God. Study it. Memorize it. But more importantly, apply it in your life. That's one thing to quote Scripture. It's another thing to apply it to our lives. A lot of Christians are under the mistaken uh, impression that simply quoting Scripture, Satan is going to run away. But Satan, as we've seen, he can quote Scripture, be it out of context. So can demons, so can atheists. The power lies in submission to God's Word, doing what God's Word commands us to do. Satan flees when he hears us say, I will do it, not I can quote it. That's our weapon. That's what God has given us to defeat the enemy. All we need to do is use it. Finally, verse 13 through 15. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogue, being glorified by all. Matthew's Gospel tells us that after these temptations, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. I'm thinking angel food cake, right? There's some angel food. Verse 13 says, And the devil had ended every temptation. That doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't tempted anymore. It simply means that Satan tried every temptation in his playbook, and Jesus didn't give in. He he never sinned. Satan exalted his playbook, left to regroup. He'd been set back, but he would return again and again until finally he would be totally defeated when Jesus went to the cross for us. As we close, Jesus resisted and defeated temptation how? Not by any supernatural abilities. He didn't call upon any mighty angel to come and help him. He didn't perform any mighty miracle. He faced Jesus, faced his adversary, not as God, but as a man depending upon God. Jesus was born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and time after time, Jesus went right back to the Word of God. Same way in our lives, it's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring God's Word to our minds when we need it to resist temptation. Now, if we don't hide God's Word in our hearts, Holy Spirit has nothing to draw from. (laughs) That's why to fight temptation, we need to hide God's Word in our heart. Memorize it. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper sharper than any two-edged sword. That's our weapon. That's what God has given to us to defeat the enemy. We just need to take it out of the sheath and we need to use it. A lot of Christians, they never use it. Which means you never really develop as a Christian a good working knowledge of Scripture. And as a result, you're going to become a casualty in this spiritual battle. One final thing to think about. When we're tempted, and we all are, understand God will always make a way for us to escape that temptation. To not give in. God's Word promises it to us in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Therefore, no temptation has taken you, but such it is common to man. 
But God will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but with the temptation will make a way for you to escape it that you might be able to bear it. There will always be a way out. Now, don't put yourself unnecessarily in a place where you know you're going to be vulnerable, where you know you're going to be tempted. If you're on a diet and you know that your weakness is Krispy Kremes, don't keep driving and buy it until that hot now sign comes on and you go, okay, and that's on. Oh, it must be on the Lord. The light's on right there. Don't even drive by it, okay? And then pray. Pray. Pray God would deliver you from evil. Matthew 6.13. Jesus taught His disciples to pray that God would deliver them from the evil one. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember when the disciples fell asleep? What Jesus told them in Mark 14.38. Keep watch and pray that you will not give into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. On our own, we are weak. We can get easily overpowered. But when we pray, we're no longer on our own. We put ourselves in touch with God's powerful Holy Spirit. Never underestimate the power of prayer in your struggle against temptation or the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. See, for the man or woman who seeks to walk with God and walk in His ways, you'll always have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to resist temptation, no matter what the devil throws at you. Listen, I know... It stinks being tempted. I hate it. I long for the day when we will never be tempted again. But for now, believe it or not, as you resist temptation, it actually can make make us stronger. Again, we don't stand in our own strength. We stand in His. But that's where we have our victory. We have our victory in Jesus who completely defeated Satan when He died for our sins upon the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time that we spent this morning in Your Word. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that, that, Lord, it would sink deep into our souls, Lord, so that when we are attacked by our enemy, Lord, we just turn to you. We just, just, Lord, we live your word, we do your word, we remember your word. Lord, your word says if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Lord, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to resist those temptations that he throws at us and to walk in your spirit. And finally, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, Lord, that you especially touched our heart this morning. Lord, right now, not being a Christian, they are open game to everything that the, the enemy is going to throw at them. We know that, Lord. That your word says that they are taken captive by the devil to do his will. And it's not until they come to know you, Lord, as Savior, that, Lord, that your spirit comes to dwell in them and, and you know, there's no room for the devil once your spirit is in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for that. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their life to you, that they would do so this morning. They would make that commitment to follow you and to live for you. And for us as believers, Lord, help us to draw near to you. Know, Lord, that as we do, we'll be attacked. Satan will try and discourage us and pull us away. But, Lord, we trust you. We believe you. We thank you for the power of your spirit in our lives to resist the temptations, to, to live for ourselves. But, to, Lord, just give us the strength to, to live for you, to please you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.